Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Daniel Lewis, CEO of Legal On Technologies. Legal On is a company that uses AI to help legal teams find and fix contract risks. This is not Daniel's first venture into legal tech, though. While a student at Stanford Law School, Daniel discovered his interest in legal tech and soon pictured himself going into business. Upon graduating, he founded Ravel Law. Many of you have heard of Ravel, and his goal with it was to use emerging technologies to build a better case law research experience. The company was ultimately acquired by LexisNexis. Following that acquisition, Daniel stayed with LexisNexis, where he served as Senior Director of Product Management and later VP and General Manager of Practical Guidance and Analytical. He left LexisNexis to take on his current role as CEO of LegalOn's U.S. business. In addition to his work with LegalOn, Daniel is an investor in startups across various sectors, including education, health, legal, privacy, and enterprise. In our discussion, Daniel talks about how he found his legal tech path, his current venture at Legal On, and how the company is incorporating generative AI in their services, as well as what he values in the businesses he invests in. Thank you so much for listening. Daniel, so great to see you again. It's been a long time, my friend. Great to see you as well. It's really good to be here with you. Yeah, where am I catching you these days? I'm working from home in uh, Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Uh, beautiful Marin County. That's great. Yeah, we've got a nice sunny day here, so all is good out in California. There you go. I want to talk about legal on technologies, but before we start at the end, let's go back to the beginning. You're a Stanford law grad. What caused you to want to go to law school? Why, why become a lawyer? I think there were two things that brought me into law school. One is I come from a family that is now all lawyers, so both parents are lawyers. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I've got two brothers who are also lawyers. And um, growing up, I think I just had a very positive experience around seeing folks in their legal careers. My father had a very fulfilling career. I think he enjoyed practicing law immensely. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, uh, didn't enjoy practicing at all. And she, she dropped out of lawyering pretty soon after she started having kids. But I think in general, I came away with a positive feeling about what it meant to be a lawyer. After college, though, I went to D.C. and worked at a think tank, and I was most interested in climate policy and clean tech. And when I was in D.C., I ended up looking at a very short list of law schools where I thought I could kind of advance my career in a policy sense and maybe find a, an operating role at a clean tech company, an advanced degree. I didn't have an engineering or a technical background. So I felt like sort of an advanced degree in law might give me things that I could add value in the clean tech economy. And I was working with a lot of former lawyers, people who had started out in law and then transitioned into policy work. And so that helped me see a bit broader scope of the kinds of things you could do with a JD beyond just traditional practice. And so that's why I ended up at Stanford. I felt like I would be right in the middle of the startup ecosystem. I had my eye on doing clean tech stuff. And it was only while at Stanford, I started to get interested in legal technology because it felt like the tools that we had in law school that we were being trained to use were pretty far out of date compared to what was available uh, across the rest of the internet. So that sort of started me on the exploration of thinking about building a business and thinking about both the technology and a data-driven mindset that I didn't see existing in law, but I was seeing in a lot of other parts of my life, including sports and policy. 
That's fascinating. It's not typical you see somebody going, maybe it's more typical now, but certainly hasn't historically been typical of someone going to law school with a desire to do something other than practicing law for a little bit. Do you ever look back and wish you'd practice law for a little bit? Um, I assume the answer is no. Yeah, it's it's no. Um, I did spend a summer at Cooley. I really enjoyed the people and I split my time between litigation and corporate work. So I dipped a toe in both. I spent time in the criminal defense clinic at Stanford and quite enjoyed that. So I, I came away from those experiences feeling like my cadence and what I was looking for didn't line up particularly well with large law practice. Some of those cases take so long to unfold that I kind of look for ways to have shorter indicators of, of success and sort of being on the right track. But I could I could imagine a lot of different careers in law that I would have enjoyed, but I'm I'm enjoying the path that I'm on. Absolutely. So your your path led you to start Ravel right out of law school. What was Ravel intended? What did it become? And what was the gap it was trying to fill that you talked about? Yeah, so really two things drove what we tried to do with Ravel from the start. One was feeling like by using the latest technology with things like machine learning and data visualization and the latest advancements in search, we could build a better case law research experience to help people more quickly find the cases that mattered and understand why they were important. And the second thing that drove it was how could we bring a more data-driven approach to legal research and legal decision-making, similar to what I had seen unfolding in policy in terms of like how you allocate capital and in sports. I played baseball through college and there was a revolution going strong underway in baseball about how you used analytics and how it was really transforming the game. And I didn't see that data-driven approach and the tools even to make it possible in law. So that was the other aspect of what we were trying to do, of thinking about all the different places where data would help a lawyer make better decisions. That could be around which cases mattered, but it also eventually blossomed into things like understanding how judges make decisions and how lawyers could put together more persuasive arguments based on really detailed understandings of judges' past decisions and the statistics around them. So that's what we set out to do. We felt like there was a, a gap in the market where people were spending lots and lots of times on the traditional research platforms doing research, and they didn't have capabilities to do things like analyze judges and their past decisions. So how do you go about building a team to do that? Because you, you talked about you don't have a deep technical background, and this is obviously something that requires technical background as well as expertise in other areas. You're fresh out of law school. You've got this idea. How do you find people willing to buy into the concept? Yeah. So while I was in law school, my 2L year, I started working on the idea behind Ravel. And I started because I didn't have a technical background. I was faced with a fork in the road. Do I try to learn how to code myself or do I try to build a team? And for me, it felt very obvious that I should go the team building route rather than try to learn how to code at a very advanced level myself. Just felt like I was a better team builder and I could bring together folks who had spent their lives and their passion learning how to code and, and build software versus trying to do it myself. So I, I looked through all of my contacts and all my friends and acquaintances, and it turns out I hadn't gone to school with many people who ended up in software engineering. <laughs> so I started going around campus, going to the different presentations that the computer science classes were doing about their projects. I started going to office hours for the different professors, asking them for introductions to students who might be interested in what I was working on. 
And slowly but steadily, I ended up um, meeting and being able to convince a handful of students in the computer science department at Stanford to join this effort on nights and weekends to help us build a prototype. And with that prototype, we were able eventually to, to turn it into funding and bring on some of those students full time. And that, that kind of helped us get going. But the first 12 months of trying to build that initial team was really hard as I learned, as I had to get out of my zone of comfort and my zone of acquaintances to meet new people and kind of learn how to communicate and pitch this idea to convince them to join. So you built Ravel into a very uh, successful company. What is it that you learned along the way? Were there obstacles that you encountered that you didn't expect to encounter? Yeah, we encountered lots and lots of obstacles. The, the list is long. You know, one of the things that's really great uh, about starting a business from scratch is you get to learn every aspect of it. So you get to learn how to market and sell and build a product and manage a team and handle finances, all of which were things that I had not really done before. So you're constantly learning each of those different functional areas. And sometimes you're able to accelerate your learning by talking to advisors. And sometimes you learn things the hard way. I think the other part about a startup and ultimately lots of different businesses is, but startups in particular are a very high pressure crucible. Um, you know, you've taken on venture capital money. The expectation is that you grow quickly and you grow to be big. And all of your efforts are directed towards those things. So you don't kind of have the luxury of trying to go slow. And so kind of a year in a startup feels like the equivalent of five years in a normal business. And they're small enough and the teams are small enough at the start that everybody has a, a really big impact on the overall trajectory of the company. Uh, everybody can see what their impact is. And so each day matters. Sort of the urgency of each day, each week is a lot greater than I think you see in a, in a typical business cadence. So all of those things take a lot of adjustment to get used to. And they also take a lot of adjustment to deal with the ups and downs. You know, small teams can be great, but they're also more fragile. You don't have a lot of redundancy. You know, if somebody quits, you maybe don't even have somebody who knows that role and can backfill. So you can have great days and bad days all in the same day <laughs> because different things can go right and wrong from lots of different directions. You can close a deal in the morning and have uh, an important person quit or have a, an issue in the afternoon. So it can be a real roller coaster from an emotional standpoint and learning how to manage that, learning how to kind of keep your focus on a vision, keep your focus on an end goal without getting tossed up and down by all the inputs that you have and all the things that are working or not working is quite hard. I think those are sort of the macro level challenges and obstacles, but there's lots of sort of day-to-day -day things you come across too. So your market was law firms? Yeah, we sold primarily into large law firms. And what was that sales cycle like? Because you're going up against pretty entrenched incumbents in the space. Granted, they did something different. Yeah. They did it differently, but you still had to have obstacles facing you in that sales cycle, I would think. Definitely. You know, I think in the best of circumstances, a typical sales process to a law firm involves lots of different stakeholders and can take time. So regardless of the product, typically, you're going to be dealing with some combination of partners and associates and staff from the different functional groups, whether that's knowledge management or IT. 
And as you know, law firms don't always have super hierarchical or clear decision-making structures. So you're not necessarily you know, working your way methodically through this. Instead, you're sort of working on a triangulation of these different folks. Although, you know, most places, partners have the key power to get things done. Particular to Ravel, you know, part of our offering was around traditional research competing with Lexis and Westlaw. And in that capacity, although, you know, we believed we had a, a superior product in some ways, and while users of the product would say, yeah, we really, we really like this experience for searching cases. At the same time, I think most firms found it very difficult to spend more money on traditional research tools, given that they were already spending quite a lot on, on Lexus or Westlaw or both. So that, that was difficult. When we ended up being able to release analytics about judges and other entities in the, in the litigation process, that felt like a real unlock where all of a sudden firms were able to justify it in a new way, saying, hey, we're always hungry to know everything we can about cases and litigants, and in particular, the judge. And if you're offering us data and insight about judges that we didn't have access to before from anybody, that's easy for us to start talking about how we pay for that. And then it's a conversation more about price and usage and and less about having them cancel some other product or have to make space on top of something else that they're already using. So that for us was was kind of critical in ultimately getting some momentum and getting more traction in selling into large law firms. Yeah, that's what I remember from working with you guys as being the aha moment. Tell us a little bit about that feature set and sort of how you thought through the data analytics piece of it to accomplish that result. Yeah, and I remember actually meeting, I think, with you and, and partners from your firm in the early stages of that. And, and in my memory, you know, we were all sitting around a big conference table and we were talking about judge analytics and we were talking about some of the other technology we had. And I think you guys were essentially saying, hey, you, you guys look like smart guys. You're, you're building something interesting. Here's a problem that we have. And somebody pulled out their BlackBerry, <laughs> their iPhone at the time, and essentially said, you know, we just got another email it went around the whole firm asking who knows something about judge so and so. Can you guys help us answer that question? Because the traditional way that we have to answer that is we send an email and somebody says, well, the judge really likes red wine and I know they ski in Aspen every year. But that doesn't tell us a whole lot about how they handle their cases. And um, that was really, you know, the conversations like that were part of what helped us think through what kind of information really matters and how could we go about gathering that. What would a clerk for that judge know about how that judge makes decision that the law firm would like to know? And so we ended up building out a lot of data science to basically aggregate all of the opinions that a judge had written and then start classifying them in really granular ways to know which opinions were about what topics, what motions were they deciding on, what were the outcomes of those motions. And with those bits and pieces of information, we could spin up really interesting dashboards and statistics saying, in particular kinds of cases, this judge has granted a motion to dismiss 57% of the time. And here are all the cases where they've granted, and here's the language that they've used to grant it. So that from a research perspective, not only could you see the big picture, but you could then quickly drill in and say, I want to find the three cases just like mine to see what cases resonated. How do I frame the argument in the same way? That sort of thing. Yeah, I remember the uh, the dashboard and the scorecard being incredibly valuable tools. You ultimately built the company and, and, and sold it, and you went to work for the acquiring company, Lexus. What was it like? You're no longer in a startup environment. You're now in a big enterprise. What was that experience like? There must have been an adjustment period 
for you personally? Definitely. Yeah. When we were acquired, we were 30, 35 people and and Lexus is a 10,000 person global organization. So we were, you know, a a small fish in in a much bigger pond now. You know, fortunately, we had a really great reception from Lexus. They were really excited to have us. They were really excited to work to incorporate our products and technology into the core of Lexus and also to have our people, myself included. So we ended up having a lot of political capital and being able to both preserve some of the original culture of Ravel as a startup and some of the practices that we had. Lexus ultimately adopted and said, hey, we like the way that you guys do things. We're going to roll that out across the rest of our product teams, or our engineering teams. And so, you know, our head of engineering eventually became a CTO within Lexus leading global platforms. I took on some greater leadership roles. My co-founder, Nick, took on some greater leadership roles. And so in a relatively short order, I feel like we were able to really step into the senior leadership ranks within Lexus and help shape the direction of the broader business, which was exciting. And I, I encouraged our team to do that when we were going through the acquisition and we shared it with the team. I said, look, it's kind of awkward because we're getting acquired by this company that we've been competing against for the last five years. <laughs> it had to be a little awkward. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's, you know, there, there's a, a, a bit of jujitsu you need to do with your own mindset about that to be prepared to be a, a positive citizen. But I told our team, I wanted them to be like friendly Vikings. I wanted our, our ship of Ravel to sort of crash into the Lexus ship at full momentum. I wanted our team to sort of climb on board and integrate with Lexus and to step into a, uh, as many leadership roles as we could so that we could influence this bigger organization that you know, obviously, in some ways, we thought was doing things the wrong way. We had set out to do things in a new way. And I think we were really welcomed in in that boarding process, which was nice to see. That speaks well of the company, because part of the sales pitch had to be, we're better than them. They're doing it the wrong way. We're doing it the right way. And that could have led to hard feelings among some on an individual basis. And it sounds like it did. So kudos to both sides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Yeah, we were never aggressively marketing publicly against any of our competitors when we were selling Ravel. So we we were intentional about we didn't want to make enemies and we didn't want to badmouth other people. And so we I don't think we'd set ourselves up for undue friction within Lexus beforehand, but it could have been very different, right? It could have been uh, we encountered a company that felt like they had every answer and they knew the right way to do things and they were inflexible and unwilling to learn. And, you know, instead, I think we found a really interesting two-way dialogue. Oh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. So your last position at Lexus before uh, before leaving to go to Legal On was VP and General Manager of Practical Guidance and Analytical. Tell me what that job is. It's a fascinating title. Yeah. So it covers basically all of the non-case law content at Lexus. All of the secondary materials, the treatises and the practice guides and the templates, all of that. So management of all of the famous authors who write treatises, management of the practical guidance product line, which provides lawyers with advice and templates and data to help them take on tasks across a range of different practice areas. A bit different than what we were doing with Ravel, but an interesting challenge for me because it was a team of you know, ultimately over 300 folks across the US and the UK and Canada, lots of in-house attorneys who are drafting this material or managing our outside authors. And we were starting to, we were in fierce competition with a, a competitive product from Westlaw called Practical Law. And so we were looking for ways to differentiate, which I think my background in, in startups was helpful in 
thinking through how do we find some dimensions of value that are gaps in the marketplace where we can do things that nobody else is doing so that we have a great reason to be bought by customers. So we started doing more things around data and data-driven practical guidance, doing things around kind of the interactivity of how we tried to teach people, incorporating things like videos and data visualizations to help them understand how the law worked or how to, how to handle a particular topic. Yeah, so I led that business for about two and a half years before ultimately joining Legal On. Last question I promised about Ravel, and then we'll talk about Legal On, is one of the things I always found fascinating was the partnership with Harvard Law School to utilize their, their database of cases. Sort of how did that come about and sort of how did that conversation unfold? Because I thought that was an incredibly interesting and fabulous idea that you had to, to source that information. Yeah, that was a, a very fun, very novel endeavor. Originally, when we started Ravel, we thought we'd be able to build a comprehensive collection of case law by riding a wave of what we thought was happening at the time, which was increasing access to case law from the courts themselves. We thought courts were starting to do a better job of making current and past decisions available in electronic format. And we could gather all those up and and build a, a collection and build research tools on top of it. In reality, what happened was that wave was moving very, very slow. And so while there were pockets of light, there were lots of areas of darkness. And so we were not able to put together a comprehensive collection from publicly available sources. So we started scouring around for a pre-existing collection that wasn't Lexus's or Westlaw's because we couldn't get access to theirs, uh, a pre-existing collection that we could leverage. And it turned out that Harvard and you know the Library of Congress essentially were the two places that actually had complete collections of U.S. case law going back to the Constitution and before even. And it just so happened that I'd had a professor at Stanford named Jonathan Zittrin, who is a professor at Harvard, but he'd been visiting at Stanford at the time I had him. And he uh, was now, at that time, um, leading the library at Harvard Law School. And he was interested in digital casebooks. And so we ended up having this conversation. They were scanning a very small number of books to create kind of digital cases that they could use in, in casebooks. And we ended up saying, well, what if we funded you guys digitizing the whole collection, all 40,000 books, and we'll fund it if we can have access to it and build our research systems on top of it. And you guys will have a, a copy of it. And there were a lot of complexities to sort of forging that relationship and making it work between Harvard and, and us. But ultimately, we, we did the deal. And over the next, oh, I think it took 18 months or 24 months or something, we scanned all 40,000 books, fully digitized them, and uh, brought them into the Ravel system. I, th- I just think that's an amazing, an amazing story and such a creative way to solve the problem. Yeah, I kind of wish we hadn't had to do it, right? There, there would have been easier ways to build the business. So one of the fun things is that that collection will, we had a period of exclusivity on top of it to give us a bit of a head start in, in kind of commercializing it. But that collection will become generally available next year to other folks who are interested in building on a collection of comprehensive case law. So hopefully we'll continue to see lots of innovation in that space. That's cool. That's cool. So now you're with Legal On. You're the CEO. Tell us about Legal On. Why did you go there? What does the company do? And how does it differentiate itself from others in the space? Yeah. So Legal On is a AI contract review company. Um, we help legal teams and law firms review contracts faster and with more accuracy. So you could think of it as you're an in-house lawyer reviewing uh, contracts 
that help run the business. Those could be NDAs or SaaS agreements or leases. A contract comes to you for review. You drag it and drop it into LegalOn. And three seconds later, you have this review that's been powered by our expert guidance and AI. So we'll basically do a review informed as if it was done by another great in-house attorney saying, we're going to look for several hundred different possible issues with this contract compared to what we think a great SaaS agreement, if you're reviewing a SaaS agreement, would look like. And when we spot an issue, it could be something that is missing and we'll suggest language that you should add. We might spot something that is included and should be deleted because it's unfavorable to you as the buyer or the seller. Um, or we'll suggest modifications in place, you know, swapping something out that's going to be more favorable to you. And when we make a suggestion, we'll give you language and we'll give you a practice note about why that particular point matters and what the market standards are and how to think about it in, in some edge cases. So that's the core concept behind it. The company itself is six years old, originally founded in Tokyo by a couple of attorneys there. And it has taken off in Tokyo and in Japan generally. So it's really the leading legal technology company in Japan. We serve around 3,800 customers there, a team of over 500 employees. And we launched this US business, which I had the good fortune of coming on to lead basically beginning of this year, beginning of 2023. So what attracted me to it was while I was at Lexus leading practical guidance business, I was spending a lot of time talking with in-house teams. And one of the things I kept hearing again and again was how painful contract review was and how much time it was taking up that took away from the other strategic and important work that they wanted to be able to focus more on. But they, they were sort of constantly inundated with this flow of everyday contracts that they couldn't, couldn't escape from. And so I knew there was pain there and I knew there was really not an existing solution that anybody was satisfied with. And so when I learned about LegalOn and the success they were having in Japan, it felt like an exciting opportunity to bring this really great technology and this approach of combining AI with guidance into the US. And it felt like it combined those two strengths from my background as well. It sounds like a fabulous idea. How do you go about training the model on, on the contracts? There's so much differentiation between contracts. How do you train the model? Yeah. So as, as you know, there are a million and one different ways to express different legal concepts, almost infinite, infinite variety. What we do is we have an in-house legal team that puts together kind of what we consider a model agreement for any given contract type. So that could be an NDA or a SaaS agreement. We'll say, here's what we think a really great agreement of this type looks like. Here's all the language that should be there. And here are things that shouldn't be there that we're going to watch out for. And we're going to tailor that based on what side of the agreement you're on. So are you the buyer or the seller or the recipient or the discloser or the landlord or the lessee? And we'll have different advice and different things that we're going to watch out for depending on your side of the bargain. With that kind of legal expert knowledge, we then translate that into code and say, for every issue that we're looking for, um, we're going to write software that can spot that issue. And so that's where we end up doing a lot of training of the, the software systems. And we will do all of that training up front on our side so that when we turn it on for a customer, they don't need to do any training themselves. Um, we've vetted it. We've tested for accuracy. And they just get to turn it on and start using it from day one. That's fascinating. So a couple of questions. One is, do you run into obstacles in terms of the sales cycle and to people going, well, how do we know your lawyers got it right? We're the best lawyers in the world at contract. We certainly have our egos as lawyers, and we, we always think we're better than everybody else. You must confront that dynamic 
at least at some level. We do get questions about, yeah, how we create the content. But when we explain that we hire folks who have years and years of practical experience in-house and we consult with experts for kind of industry niches and things like that, I think people are, are reassured, as we think they should be. The other thing that I've really appreciated about working, especially with in-house attorneys, is how practical they are in doing contract review. So for them, they're constantly making these trade-offs between managing risk and optimizing for speed. And so while they always want to know all of the risks that are within a contract, they are very often saying, well, that risk I can acknowledge exists, but I don't need to take action on it because in this deal, it's not that important. And I'd rather make sure that we close this deal fast. And if I try to negotiate too much, it's going to slow things down and we'll get lost in negotiation cycles. So this sort of practical mindset where they're constantly making trade-offs, they actually, you know, I think it's kind of different from a law firm mentality where they're not focused on perfection. They're not focused on trying to create this totally bulletproof, perfect SaaS agreement. They're sort of living in the messy world of reality where some things they get to negotiate and some things they don't. And we can provide them with guidance and advice about what's market standard and we can help them spot issues so they can move through all that work faster. But ultimately, they get to make decisions about what risks they want to take on behalf of the business. One of the questions as we're talking about chat GPT and generative AI is the questions of confidentiality and the using the model to train it on client confidences which freaks everybody out. I assume you found a way to deal with that issue in terms of people putting their own proprietary contracts into the system and protecting that. Yeah. So because we do the training up front, we don't rely on customer data to train our issue spotting models. That's very straightforward. We have launched a GPT-powered feature, which is very cool, which essentially says, hey, we've spotted an issue for you. We've got language that we think can fix it for you. Would you like us to make the change? And if the user presses a button and says, yeah, make this change for me, we will redline their contract for them and make that change. And we use GPT to do that. Effectively sending it information about where the issue exists, what the original language is, how we want it to make the fix, and our guidance and language that we've already created to guide it in making that change. And what we found GPT is very good at is sort of figuring out, here's where I add a word, here's where I delete a word. And so we've drawn a very tight box around what we ask it to do. And as part of that, we ended up having to go deep into figuring out how all of the security stuff works. And what we found is we uh, were able to secure with Microsoft. So we use GPT through Microsoft. Microsoft has a cloud service called Azure that it can host GPT. And so we use essentially Microsoft's version of GPT. And in our agreement with Microsoft, we've been able to ensure that None of the data that we send to Microsoft gets used to train the model. And none of the data that we send even gets stored for any period of time. So it feels to me like a very secure solution, actually, without real concerns about how a customer data might be mishandled because we've been able to kind of set these controls around it. Fabulous. I know we're, we're running out of time, but sort of the last couple of questions I have for you. You're also an investor in legal tech. Tell us a little bit about what do you look for to invest in, and what advice from your own experience do you give people who are coming to you pitching ideas or business plans? Yeah, when it comes to legal tech, I look for a few things. I look for, do they have a good understanding of the market that they're trying to sell into? I think it's easy for outsiders to say, 
wow, there's a lot of lawyers and wow, there's a lot of big law firms. I'll just build something and, and sell it into them. And if you don't have a detailed understanding of how that actually works in practice and what you're in for, I think you can easily kind of misunderstand the market. You know, so for example, I think it might surprise some entrepreneurs to know that there are only about 500 large law firms in the United States, 500 or so that have 100 attorneys or more. And so if you're going to build a business that says, I'm going to focus just on selling to large law firms, well, you better be able to command a pretty big price. Otherwise, you don't have a very big market. And it turns out that, you know, across those 500, you might have a couple dozen law firms that can move quickly and like to be early adopters. But you have a lot too that are not early adopters by any means. And they will be, you know, you're not going to get to them in the first year or two years or three years. You're going to need to be in it for the long haul to even fully kind of win adoption across meaningful percentages of those 500. So I think some, some entrepreneurs misunderstand the large law firm market and that can lead them to have wacky business plans around what their price point will be or how much capital they may need to have. But other parts of the market are very different, have totally different dynamics, right? Selling to solo attorneys is very different. You need to have a, a marketing driven approach because you're dealing with pretty price sensitive individuals. You can't have sales teams that are calling up and trying to sell thousand dollar a year deals. You have in-house teams that span a really broad range from solo GCs all the way up to, you know, the Facebooks of the world that have a thousand attorneys. And then you have corners of the market where I don't know enough about to even be a knowledgeable investor. There's parts of compliance and accounting and business marketing stuff. So there's so many aspects of legal tech that have very big companies or very healthy ecosystems of companies in them that I try to stay humble about knowing, knowing the parts that I know and recognizing the parts that I don't know so well. There you go. Well, Daniel, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed catching up with you after all these years. It's great to see the success you've had and we'll be watching Legal On and uh, I'm sure you'll build the U.S. business to a great success as well. Well, thanks for the vote of confidence and, and thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.